0: All right, we're going to finish up unit two with some more safety issues of fishing. I'd like to talk about wading. Wading is a wonderful method of gaining access to active fish, really increasing your fishing territory by getting out in the water and, and walking on the bottom through the water. It can also be dangerous. And a couple things I would like to uh, point out to you to hopefully keep you uh, safe. There's a thing called foot entrapment. And it's when your foot gets stuck between some rocks in the bottom of the stream. It sounds innocent enough. But whenever you get foot entrapment in swift moving water it can turn deadly and so uh, the scenario is you're out fishing let's say smallmouth maybe trout uh, having a great time catching fish and it's a, a rocky stream and there's boulders and rocks strewn about and you get your foot stuck between a couple of these rocks and if you've ever waded a stream, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's actually pretty easy to do. Typically, it doesn't result in anything bad, but it does happen. So you're wading and you get your foot stuck. Usually, you can twist and squirm and get your foot out. No problem. But... If we are in swift-moving water above our knees, this becomes a very dangerous situation. What do I mean by swift-moving water? I define that as any water that causes me to potentially lose my balance. You could step on a rock and it tilts or your foot slides off and you could lose your balance but if the force of the water is causing you to really concentrate on maintaining your balance you are in swift moving water that could be three inches deep six inches deep two feet deep the depth doesn't really matter it's the velocity of the water that is creating force So if you're wading swift-moving water, and you get your foot entrapped, and that water is greater than knee-deep, we've got a very serious situation on our hands. Because what, what can happen is that with your foot stuck, you it's a really weird human physiology that, that kinda takes over. You 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 know that something is that's wrong, it's it's inconvenient. Ah darn I was gonna make a cast over to that Eddie and and you're trying to get your foot out and it's like, hmm, this thing is really stuck. And you get that very first wave of panic. It kind of wells up in the bottom of your stomach and kinda of comes up through your chest and you suppress it. It's like, I've got this, I got this, I can get this out. And you keep working your foot and you kinda of twist, but and remember you're you're having to maintain your balance so that you don't fall into the water while you're trying to get your foot out and this isn't working. And then there's that second wave of panic that that comes in. It's a little stronger than that first one that you, you suppressed. But this one is like, oh, shit. What am I going to do? And you try a little harder and a little harder, and then you get to that critical point that if you let that third wave of panic come in and you freak out, it's probably not going to end well. So you really have to suppress that, that panic. Maintain control of yourself. Maintain breathing. Maintain your cognitive processes. Work the problem. Hopefully, you can get your foot freed, go back to the bank, and take uh, several deep breaths and regain your composure. Good time to have lunch. If things don't work out so well, if you freak out and and start just thrashing and banging and, and cussing and cursing, and you lose your balance and you're in the water, you're going to get dragged downstream, your upper body. And if you are unfortunate enough to have been facing upstream when your foot got entrapped, and you've lost your balance, now you're lying on your back, head pointed downstream. If the water is really shallow, less than knee deep, this isn't a problem. You're just kind of sitting there foolishly, you know, with your foot stuck in the bottom of the river. But if that water is greater than knee deep, the force of that water is going to push your upper body underwater. This is not a good position to be in. This is how some fishermen have drowned. If you're facing downstream and this happens, well, the force of the water is still pushing your upper body underwater. Maybe you can do a push up off the bottom to get your head above water, but for how long? So take this seriously. The rule of thumb is not to wade in swift moving water greater than knee deep. Some ways that you can help prevent this is, you know, wearing wading shoes, something that has, you know, good traction. Fly fishermen used to use uh, felt-soled shoes. That offered very good traction on moss-covered rocks, but those have fallen out of favor due to their likelihood of transmitting uh, aquatic invasive species. We'll talk more about this later. Um, recovery. <sighs> Usually, we use the word recovery when we're looking for a dead body. So, um, prevention is is really the best thing to do. Don't wade in. Swift-moving water greater than knee-deep. A lot of this stuff we have learned from the canoeing and kayaking communities. In, in whitewater canoeing or kayaking, we, we teach that if you go into the water, don't stand up. Swim. And they have what's called the defensive swim position, where you're floating on your back, with your feet pointed downstream and using your arms you can kind of do that that you know Backstroke thing, and angle yourself towards shore, and and work yourself into shore. Uh, By having your feet pointed downstream, you can ward off any rocks or or trees or sharks or anything like that, and 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 uh, uh, help protect yourself. But do not stand up. In fact, whenever you can start to feel the bottom, and it's still swift-moving water resist that urge to stand up because that's when foot entrapment can happen. Now let's move on to hypothermia. What is hypothermia? Most of you, many of you probably know that it is the cooling of the body, particularly the torso area. There's a a YouTube video here that is in the Unit 2 watch list in YouTube. I encourage you to, uh, to check it out. Um, why are we talking about hypothermia in a fishing class? Well, there are people who go fishing when it's cold. And there are people who go fishing and then it becomes cold. And so that's why we're really concentrating on this. So hypothermia is a cooling of the body's core temperature. Our normal body temperature is 98.6. Whenever it drops to about 97, we are technically in a mild case of hypothermia. I'm pretty sure that every one of you have had hypothermia before. It's not really contagious, but it's very, very common. If you have ever shivered from the cold, you've had hypothermia. That's really one of the very first signs. Um, cold hands, cold feet is a early sign of, of hypothermia. The body is really unique. It is designed expertly to protect life. And it will do extraordinary things. To preserve that life and when it comes to to cold it wants to protect that torso on males it's the the upper torso and on females it's the the lower torso and it does this by regulating how much heat goes to all parts of our body and whenever that torso starts to experience a temperature drop it simply reduces the heat flow via the, the blood circulation to our extremities. Our greatest extremities, the ones most distant from our, our pump, is the, our hands and our feet. So it starts to restrict the, the capillaries in these areas, cutting back on the blood flow and the transfer of heat so that's why your hands are getting cold that's why you have have cold feet is that your 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 torso is trying to conserve some of that heat for itself as the temperature continues to drop other things start to happen hands start to get immobile um it's difficult to manipulate small things we become clumsy um we start to feel the pain from the cold if you've ever you know stuck your hands into to ice water you know that it doesn't take very long until i mean your hands are like on fire just stinging like crazy and this is is hypothermia what can we do to prevent a um a case of mild hypothermia there's 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 several things um clothing is one I think a down vest is one of the most critical items for any outdoors person to carry in anything except the heat of the summer. It's small, it's compact, and it provides a tremendous amount of insulation. If you put that down vest on, we're insulating our torso, keeping that heat in, which allows... The heart to continue to send warm blood to our extremities, and it keeps our hands and our feet warm. So yeah, if you got cold feet, put a vest on. It's actually going to warm your your feet up. It's kind of weird the way that works, but but it works. How do you treat hypothermia with a mild case? Pretty simple. Like I said, you can put uh, put a vest on you can go inside where it's nice and warm and toasty you can have a hot chocolate that's a wonderful and delicious way of adding some heat to your furnace i would suggest that you avoid alcohol alcohol is a depressant sure it you know burns going down but uh, Uh, it actually causes capillaries to constrict. And that's exactly the opposite of what we want to happen. So leave the booze until later. It's not really going to help. One thing that people do all the time, it drives me crazy, is they don't wear a hat you lose a tremendous amount of heat through your neck and your head. If you've ever had a, a head wound, if you've ever you know gotten a gash or a cut in the head, you know that it bleeds like crazy. I mean, you could get the same cut on your arm, and yeah, there's a few drops of blood, but if you get that same cut on your head, you think that you are dying because of there's so much blood. Well, <laughs> that's because there's a lot of blood flow around our head. And that also means that a lot of heat escapes from our head because that blood flow, those capillaries, are so close to our skin. And so our head is, is really a radiator that just dumps heat into the cold atmosphere so in addition to a down vest a hat is absolutely essential if you're out with somebody and they're complaining about being cold and they're not wearing a hat you don't have to listen to it because they're not wearing a hat of course you're cold duh what happens when that temperature continues to drop and we get into a moderate case of hypothermia this is really really dangerous this is where we have to take some immediate drastic action technically you could survive a very long time with a mild case of hypothermia you're going to be probably pretty miserable. It's not going to be a lot of fun, but you're probably not going to die from it. But when we get into a moderate case between 93 and 90 degree Fahrenheit core body temperature, this is where it starts to get serious. One thing that happens is that you stop shivering. This is not a good sign. If you have not done anything to add heat to the body. You've not had hot chocolate. You've not put on a vest, put on a hat, gone inside. And just all of a sudden, you stop shivering. Not a good sign. That means that the body has exhausted all the energy that it has for that that shivering response. And it's given up. It's going to try to save itself by doing something else. The other thing that happens here is that we start to become really stupid. Confusion sets in. Cognitive process breaks down. And we start doing dumb things. I mean, logic, reason just goes out the window. You know that the car is upstream of you on the river but for some reason you just think you could get there faster by walking downstream i mean it, things just bizarre things can start to to happen and this is where people really get into trouble and if they're not careful if they don't do something we can fall into severe case of hypothermia This is where the core body temperature drops between 90 and 82 degrees. Shivering has stopped. Confusion, abnormal behavior, loss of reasoning, and recall. Victim appears drunk, very clumsy, slurs speech, denies there's even a problem. I feel fine. I'm half Russian. I'm used to the the cold. You can lose consciousness. Oh, God, am I tired. You know, I think if I just take a little nap, I'll regain my energy and I can walk out of here. I'm just going to take a, a nap over here under this nice pine tree. It looks warm under that pine tree. Oh, yeah, this is nice. Whew, in fact, I'm a little hot. I'm going to take my, my jacket off. And they find you three days later, you know sitting there in your in your underwear, um, deader than a doornail, frozen solid i mean this 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 I'm not making this up. this stuff happens. If you're by yourself in this situation, things are probably going to not be good. Hopefully, you have a buddy who is in better condition than you and that warm person now has full responsibility for caring of the cold person. Sometimes that is not easy. If you have a strong-willed person, maybe bigger than you are, um, you're going to have to push through that, leave me alone, I'm okay! You know, as the, as the confusion just just continues to increase and and violence can break out in this Um, it is it's not a good situation you've got to get professional medical care now here's something else that's really weird about hypothermia if a if a person is in moderate or severe hypothermia they've got to get rewarmed And the rule of thumb is that you rewarm the person in the same manner that they became hypothermic so if you're out ice fishing and you fall through the ice and you drag your wet half frozen you know carcass out of there and you get back to shore you get back to the truck You get into the truck, you start taking off all your your clothes and you start the, 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 the truck and turn it on high and just let the heater bake you. This is a good method of recovering. If you were out on that fishing trip and you slipped and fell in, maybe you were waiting and you lost your balance and you went in and it was... 65 degrees when you started around one o'clock that afternoon, but now it's 38 degrees. You know, at nine o'clock at night, as you're stumbling along the bank, this is what what can happen. You've gone the wrong way. You've gotten yourself totally lost. Nobody knows that you're there and you stumble around the next day just getting colder and more in trouble and more in trouble. And finally, on the third day, somebody finds you and gets you the help that you need. In that case, you became hypothermic over a very long period of time. If they put you in the truck, turn on the heater full blast and start to cook you they'll probably kill you there's a thing called aftershock and you've been wandering around the woods with cold cold blood in your extremities that blood's really not circulating much at all and it's very very cold and then as you start to heat the body up and the circulation system starts kicking in it starts circulating that really cold blood back up through the heart and boom cardiac arrest because of that that cold shock of the of the blood to to the heart i read one statistic that said that florida suffers from more deaths from hypothermia than Alaska does. And they went on and they talked about how there's a lot of people who work in the fishing industry in Florida and years ago all of the freezers that they used to store the fish in had locks on the outside but no release mechanism on the inside. So it's Friday night, people are trying to, to get out of there, they've got a hot date or something, somebody goes in to you know reposition the final you know, uh, 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 basket of, of fish, and someone on the outside is like, okay, let's get out of here, we're, we're all set, and they close the freezer door, not knowing that you're inside. Monday morning, they find you still alive, barely call the ambulance, rush you off to Miami General. Oh my gosh, he's hypothermic. we got to get him rewarmed. And they go through the procedure for rapid rewarm and cold shock comes through, bangs the heart, boom, you're dead. In Alaska, they deal with this all the time. It's like, okay, how long was he out? Four days? Okay. And they have a regiment that they put you through to rewarm the body so that you don't die. In Florida, they just don't see this and they don't really know how to. So, if we look at the early warning signs of hypothermia, confusion, shivering, difficulty speaking, slurring of words, the person appears drunk, sleepiness, and muscle stiffness. If we follow the rule of hypothermia, we can keep ourselves safe most of the time. And that rule is that when the air temperature and the water temperature, when added together, is less than 100 degrees, there is a real risk of hypothermia. So, what's that mean? We don't go fishing, we don't go canoeing or kayaking or a hike in the woods? No. It means that you have recognized that there is a risk of hypothermia and you are going to take appropriate actions, such as using the layering system to keep yourself dry and warm. The layering system is really easy. We've been using it for thousands of years. Yeah, sometimes we've kind of forgotten about it and we don't enjoy all of its benefits. Really simple. Layering system consists of three clothing layers. You have the base layer. A lot of people call that your long underwear. You have a middle layer, which functions as your insulation layer. And then you have the outer layer, which protects you from rain, wind, and snow. The secret of staying warm in cold weather is to stay dry. If you can stay dry, you will probably be warm. Heat can transfer about, I think it's around 25 times faster if you're wearing wet clothing than if you're wearing dry clothing. If you think about it, it's uh, 15, 20 degrees, and somebody soaks you down with a garden hose, <laughs> that's going to be really miserable. But if we can stay dry by having a waterproof outer layer and they soak you down with a water hose, you'll probably probably be pissed, but you'll also probably be warm. So. That's the function of these three layers. the base layer, the long underwear, it doesn't have to be terribly expensive. I bought some long long underwear at Sam's Club, um, or you can probably get it at Walmart. It was like ten dollars a piece for you know a top and a bottom. You can go really high tech, high end, you know, brand name and spend well over $100 for the, for the same two, two pieces. What we're looking for here is some type of material that does not absorb water. And that's typically plastics, either polyester or polyethylene. You can wear wool underwear. Moreno wool is the Preferred type. It's not itchy like some other types of wool. It tends to be pretty expensive though. I mean, you can get, you could spend $200 for a good pair of merino wool uh, underwear, but it is incredibly nice and it's a natural material. Your middle layer, again, is probably a polyester or a, a polyethylene. Uh, Fleece type material, again, you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars for this. You can go very inexpensive. Wool is a wonderful insulation layer. Whenever we we evaluate the performance between synthetics and natural materials, we look at their total water retention value. And most of your synthetics, polyesters, will retain one to three percent water. If you if you take your your fleece jacket, submerge it in the bathtub, pull it out, wring it out real good, it will retain about three percent of its uh, uh, of, of that water. A wool sweater, you do the same thing, is going to retain about 15 percent if you do that with a cotton sweater it's going to retain a hundred percent of its weight in water cotton makes really good bath towels because it absorbs water cotton t-shirts in the summer are wonderful because it absorbs perspiration And then through evaporation, there's a cooling effect. But for winter, it's generally better to stay away from the cotton. And in fact, we used to say that cotton is cool and wool is warm. Cotton socks, not a good idea for a winter hike because it's going to retain that sweat, that moisture from your feet. And your feet give off a lot of moisture. And wet cotton socks are going to transfer heat about 25 times faster than if they were dry. So yeah, you're going to get cold feet even if you are wearing a hat and a wool vest because your, your heater have turned into a radiator and it's just dumping, dumping heat. The outer layer, here you have a couple choices. There are two types. There's a waterproof, breathable material most notably Gore-Tex, and there is a waterproof material, most notably some type of a vinyl-coated fabric. At one time, back in the stone ages of the 80s and 90s, Gore-Tex was incredibly expensive, And it was the only waterproof breathable on the market because (laughs) they had to patent for it. Well, that patent expired in the early 90s and a flood of waterproof breathable technologies hit the market. And some of them are really good and some of them are not so good. Honestly, I wouldn't worry all that much about it. If you're buying a a rain shell that's a hundred bucks, it's probably not going to perform as well as one that's selling for two hundred bucks. Just kind of, a, you know, economics. The waterproof breathable fabric has the advantage of allowing moisture perspiration that we're generating to escape out through the fabric. That keeps us drier. It's waterproof so that in a rain or snowstorm, it's going to keep the water from entering. A waterproof outer layer, such as a vinyl, is going to be 100% without a doubt waterproof. No water shall enter from the outside. The problem with that is it is absolutely 100% waterproof. No moisture shall pass through from the inside. So if it's 55 degrees out and it's pouring down rain and you're putting on a vinyl jacket, you're probably going to end up just as wet from your own sweat from the inside as you would have from the rain from the outside. So that's kind of the, 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 the trade-off. Waterproof breathables aren't some newfangled modern inventions. We've had waterproof breathable fabrics for, for millennium. Uh, leather, when properly smoked, becomes mm, a waterproof breathable fabric. Probably not the same performance characteristics as, you know, a high-end Gore-Tex, but it's comfortable and survivable. So, other things to do in um, prevention, in addition to using the um, layering system, is to carry a dunk bag with you. A dunk bag is a collection of clothing that you can put on if you happen to find yourself immersed in water you pull yourself out get back to the vehicle grab the dump dunk bag change out of the wet clothes into the dry clothes continue on a wonderful outdoor outing it doesn't hurt just to carry some extra clothing somebody else may be missing something or they could benefit from something. Uh, carry some food, some energy type food and water. Always have extra water with you. Keep an eye on the weather. Remember, it was, you know, 65 degrees when you started this uh, fall fishing outing. And three hours later, it's now 45 degrees with the wind picking up. And oh, yeah, it's now raining. So keep an eye on the weather. It can change quickly. And if you're, you know, in the Midwest, you know the old saying, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change. Have a backup plan for any type of trip that you're, you're, you're going on. If weather conditions, stream conditions, lake conditions are not favorable for a pleasant, comfortable, productive outing, have a backup maybe you go see a movie, maybe you go bowling. And the final thing is to file a float plan. Let somebody know what you're doing, where you're going, and about what time you expect to get back. That could be a call to your, you know, to your husband, wife, parents, neighbor, fishing buddy who's not going with you so on and so forth. If you don't have someone that you can count on like that, you get to the the the, the, the put-in and you're leaving your vehicle there, it's not a bad idea to write out a little note and stick it in the windshield. Yeah, somebody who has nefarious... Um, intentions could come by and see that you're not planning to be back for another 6 hours and they can trash your vehicle. That sucks, but honestly, they were going to probably do that anyway, so it doesn't make that much difference. If you're really kind of paranoid about that, maybe put a note in the on your dashboard uh and turn it over so that a lot of these areas are patrolled by either conservation officers or sheriffs and they notice the truck has been there. Um, maybe it's been there a little too long and they notice that there is obviously a note up on the windshield and they might take some actions to get into to read that. It, it could be a lifesaver, so so consider doing something like that. And if you want more information about uh, hypothermia, there's a a web uh, site down here that you can check out. Speaking of hypothermia, you can also die through immersion. You find yourself in cold water, and it brings on hypothermia, and you'll die from that. If the water temperature is just above freezing, 32 and a half degrees, you probably have less than 15 minutes of consciousness. 45 minutes until death comes. If the water temperature is between 50 and 60 degrees, you have eh, one to two hours of consciousness, and one to six hours of of life. These are general terms, general estimates, and there are hundreds of examples where these have not proven true. A person goes overboard on a cruise, water temperatures 40 degrees, They should have died in three hours. They find them the next day, 12 hours later, and the person's still alive. Not in great shape, but still alive. And one of the, in analyzing these things, scientists have figured out that the real determining factor with these is not so much the effects of hypothermia on the body, but it is the the will to live on the body. And so somebody who has that, that, that fighting spirit, that, that that inner strength to push through this through all the suffering, through all the pain, and through the, the certainty of coming death, these there are people who have, have long survived after they should have, have perished. So that, that inner you know, fighting spirit to live really seems to be the, the, um, uh, one of the determining factors. Here's another really nasty way to, to die of uh, cold water. It's um, called cold shock. And this occurs whenever the body is suddenly thrust into very cold water. It's, a, uh, it's also referred to the mammalian diving reflex. It's a, an involuntary response to cold water on the face. That response is a shutdown of the circulatory and a shutdown of the respiratory system. The body just quits. It's like, nope, I'm out of here. I'm down. Just gone. And if you've ever experienced someone throwing a glass of cold water in your face, ooh, that could be a class assignment. Nah, I wouldn't do that. If you've ever experienced someone throwing cold water in your face, there's a (gasps) a gasping reflex. You inhale air. But if your face is underwater and you do that, you inhale water. And that's not good. And again, the British have done a lot of research on this and some of their early research right after World War II. They had young Air Force cadets... are going through flight training go through the dunk tank and this was a tank that had a um, a seat you know from an aircraft mounted and it was on a sliding rail system over a swimming pool and you have to I'm sure you've probably seen this in some documentary. You know, you're you're twenty feet up above the water and they release a catch and you go sliding down and you slam into the water and then your seat inverts so that you're upside down. You have to have the wherewithal, the control to undo the safety harness, the straps and get yourself out of there. It it simulates a water ditching. And they started to experiment with warm water and cold water. And what they found was that if they had these these trainees go through the dunk tank exercise, and the water was like 40 degrees, very, very cold, i.e. North Atlantic, and they went slamming into the water, inverted, about 90% of them experienced cold shock. Now, I don't think anybody died from this because they had to have divers right there to you know, get the person out, but about 90% of them experienced this, this gag reflex, this inhale of air, and, and the, the kind of loss of control of, of respiratory and, and uh, circulation. They would have another group that they told them, you are flying over the North Atlantic. Water temperature is 40 degrees. And they go in and they hit that water, invert, get themselves out. Only about 10% of them experienced cold shock. Whoa! Talking about mind over, over body there is this connection that if you know that that water is cold and you know about cold shock you can greatly reduce the risk in canoeing and kayaking classes we taught this that when you're boating in cold water which (laughs) mountain streams is almost like always that if you go over Don't tell anybody about it. Keep your mouth shut. And if you can keep that that initial intake of air, of water, your chances of surviving this is incredibly good. There's a a lot of cases where people have been, um, uh, cause of death was pronounced as drowning when, in fact, it was probably more of a cold shock. And it has to do with the amount of water in the lungs and so on and so forth. I don't really understand it, but there you go. This is a, a story I'll let you read on your own. But it's, it's an example of how really innocent circumstances can turn... Very deadly, and basically this um, occurred several years ago in Linton, which is the county just um, uh, Green County, just to the west of us. Um, it was in early spring. Water temperature was thirty-seven degrees, and a couple of fishermen came in um, and to. to take the boat out and they let the boat drift away and somebody decided that they'll swim after the boat to get it and it didn't turn out well. So anyway, um, I'll let you read that at your your leisure and and take from it um, hopefully a, a lesson. Otherwise, I would like to leave you with a final thought that the further from the road you go, the more you need to know. It can be a very wonderful, exciting world out there, but at the same time, it can also be dangerous. And so you have to to know what you're doing whenever you're uh, getting out off the beaten path. So that wraps up Unit 2, and I will see you next week for Unit 3. Thanks a lot.